night. You guys surviving? I think this is, from what I understand, the uh, what first test week for a lot of you and stuff. Freshman, you're going to be okay, okay? Do your studying. Don't wait till five minutes before the test. Guess what? It's the first one. You will survive. Put in your work. God honors you put in work. It's going to be okay. Just deep breaths. Everyone, every freshman here. Okay. Hey, why don't welcome you all to service tonight. Uh, if it's your first time, my name is Tom Trask. I'm the campus pastor, and we are glad to have you. Um, I want to go ahead and just get into things really quickly. Uh, we're, we're currently in a message series called Make Your Mark. And we're learning how to have an internal impact on our world by changing and becoming all that Jesus created us to be. And we're going to be focusing a lot on Jesus' interaction with his disciples this semester. And the disciples, they were Jesus' followers that uh, he was living life with. He spent every day with, teaching them, loving on them, and helping them become more like him. And the disciples, they're lucky. They had a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. They got to hear him teach. They got to see him meet needs. They got to see him lay hands on people and heal them. They got to see him speak life and hope into people. And they were invited into his ministry. Wherever Jesus went, Jesus brought change. And Jesus brought his disciples. This year, my focus is to really help us kind of uh, put our feet into the sandals of the disciples to walk in their shoes, and to come from their perspective of their time during, during their time with Jesus. To hear his teachings. To work with him. To listen to that deeper insight that he had for his disciples. You see, even though it's been a couple thousand years, I really don't believe being a disciple of Jesus today is really that much different than being a disciple of Jesus back then. It's just how we choose to approach it. And even if it is different, guess what? Jesus has called us to go make disciples. And so, to that end, we're going to be looking at Jesus' ministries and specifically the lessons that Jesus wanted his disciples to know. I mean, remember, he's got a bunch of guys who, who, let's just be nice about it and say, they were a work in progress. And Jesus only had three years to work with them and to pour in them and teach them to help them change so that they could leave their mark on the world so that he could then in turn leave his church with them. And so before I get any deeper into the semester, I want to be honest and upfront with you about a couple things. There will be times during the school year I'm going to say some things 
that you won't like. It's okay. I don't get too mad. But you see, being a disciple of Jesus and becoming more like Him, it's not about being easy. It's not about being comfortable. And please understand, my job isn't to make your life easy or comfortable. I think there are a lot of churches that already do that too often. My job is to help prepare you. Uh, You guys know what I mean when I say uh, helicopter parents, right? Maybe there are some of you that have helicopter parents. I don't know. I I used to, I have my teaching degree. Um, I like to still read uh, different uh, journals and websites that teachers write on. And I was reading not too uh, long ago about a teacher's perspective that they're like, yeah, we're going from helicopter parents to basically what are called lawnmower parents. Their job is that they try to mow down any obstacle in their kid's way. They don't want their kids to experience stress or hard work or anything that might be difficult. They get out in front of it and hack everything down so the life is perfect, or so they think. The problem is they have not prepared their children for the real world. I'm not a lawnmower pastor. And Chi Alpha is not a lawnmower ministry. I will teach you how to fight. I will fight with you and I will prepare you for what is to come because I know that we have an enemy that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And it's not to frighten you because our God is bigger than our enemy. But we want to prepare you for what is to come. And so there will be times I say things you don't like this semester. And that's going to be because of one of two reasons. First, I may be wrong. Guess what? I'm human. I make mistakes. And the older I get, the more I realize how little I truly know. I'm willing to accept it. I imagine there's going to be a day I'm standing before the Lord and Jesus is going to be like, dude, you were wrong. Cool. That's why I serve you, Lord. You're awesome. The second option is that I'm right. And maybe your perspective is out of line with God's. You see, when we can't see right, when we have the wrong perspective, you are going to see the wrong things. Uh, Where's Tyler? Tyler, come here for a second. Just quickly. Tyler is a talented young man. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) Humble too, okay. Um, But Tyler's a great guitarist. He's been a part of the ministry a long time. But we all got faults, right? Tyler, would you like to confess your faults in front of everyone tonight? We're actually here to speak into you. Okay, you're done. Okay. (laughs) I I love Tyler. And he lived in the... How long did you live in the Kyle House, anyways? 
Five years. That is long. Wow. Wow, I didn't even know that. Sweet. Good for you. Thanks for your rent. All right. <laughs> but I've kept come to find out with Tyler, there were days that he would come downstairs, and I didn't realize for a while that you actually wear glasses. And these are actually really nice glasses. They're very hip and trendy. You look like a nice youth pastor. <laughs> Joggers on. You're good to go. Sweet. Uh, but you see, when Tyler first moved in the house, he had some ugly glasses. Thick. Uh, don't worry. We're not, you're like, no, we, we didn't crack out the picture from back in the day and stuff. But, I mean, Tyler's... I don't want to say blind, because you can, you, it's just, uh, you have some bad sight, correct? How, like, how bad are we talking? Yeah, yeah. yeah, take off your glasses, that's cool. So you're blurry, then. In order to actually see, just kind of get weird. In order to actually see you clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be that close. Okay, extreme. Yeah. And so, okay, take them off again. So, all right. My back row of guys sitting back there. Stand up and wave. Stand up, Stephen, and wave. There we go. It's, yeah, there we go. Can you see them at all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I recognize that they're there. You, the, you know there are humans there. Yeah. Could you mistake, well, one of them is uh, Austin back there. Really? If, if he went... <laughs> If he went like this, he could be a bear, maybe. But there we go. You, w you wouldn't really know who you're looking at, right? Now that I know Austin's there, I, do know. I don't know who anybody else is. Yeah, because we told you what's really there. Because your perspective is off, because, let's face it, your eyes kind of suck. Okay. Put the glasses back on. Ha. Ah, look. Hey, it's... I thought Jacob was Jeff, to be honest. I, uh, no, okay. <laughs> but here, here's the thing. This is kind of our spiritual life. Sin is like Tyler without glasses. Kind of jacks us up. Kind of makes it so we can't see. You kind of freak them out a little bit and stuff. <laughs> and things from a distance can appear kind of scary because we can't see it clearly and so our imagination kind of takes over and we begin to think there might be a bear in the back or well my daughter's afraid of wolves so you know there's no wolves here but when God gives us clarity we can see things for how they truly are thanks Tyler thanks for being blind all right Jesus wants the same for you and me. If you don't like something I say this year, I need you to ask yourself a question. Based on God's Word, what God says to us, and based on Jesus' life that He modeled and He lived out to us, what's the truth? You may see things, you may not believe things, but you need to base the truth off of this. Uh, freshmen, 
I'm going to say a phrase that you, if you stay in the ministry the whole time that you're in college, you will hear me say a million and one times, but that's okay because you need to hear it a million and one times. Emotions are real. It doesn't make them the truth. We are controlled by our emotions, and Satan likes to play on our emotions. It doesn't make it truth. We need to see from God's perspective. Jesus told Peter in Mark 8:33, "You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's." God's going to challenge you to see things from his way. And you see the reason I'm saying this tonight is because a question keeps on running through my head as I'm studying and I'm kind of looking at what I want to speak on for the semester, and it's a simple little question, why change? And I know we've already talked about why we should change, to leave our mark on this world, to make an impact, to become more like Jesus, but it keeps on coming up over and over again, and it's not because I question the Bible or what it says, but it's because I'm kind of haunted by some ghosts. Not literal ghosts, folks, okay? Or even the Holy Ghost. I'm not haunted by Him either. But I'm haunted by the memory of some students' past. Students who I know met Jesus face to face. And he said to them, come follow me. And they asked, why change? And they walked away. There are great parts of being in ministry. This is the hard part. Is when you watch someone you love walk away from Jesus. The truth is, when Jesus says, come follow me, it will change you. You cannot, will not remain the same. And obviously, we've talked about all the good changes that happen when we follow Jesus. But that being said, when we walk away from Jesus, it also changes a person. Saying no to Jesus makes that person hard. It makes them less sensitive. It makes it where they don't have ears to hear, eyes to see, or a heart to sense God. I, I'm, I'm part of a fellowship. I meet with other pastors. I go to different churches, raise money for Chi Alpha. And I have pastors ask me all the time, hey, Tom, man, being on a campus like Mizzou and stuff, that, that's a hard place. What's the hardest type of student to reach? Who, who, who is the one that put up the biggest fight? Is it the atheist who doesn't believe in God? Is it the international student who doesn't, hasn't even heard of God or maybe they saw, serve a false God? And my response is always the same to them. No. The hardest student to reach is the Christian who thinks they already have it figured out. They think they don't need to change. 
or want to make the sacrifice to change. And you got to understand, this isn't what the Lord wants. This isn't what the Lord wants for you or me or any person. He wants to change us. And so tonight, I want to look at a person in the Bible that faced the same question you and I each face and made a decision that each one of us have to make. I want us to look at the story of the rich young ruler found in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Tonight, I'm going to give you a little bit of background, but I'm also going to paraphrase this because, well, we need to save a little bit of time. And so I'll pull out some verses as we go through it. Once again, Jesus has been doing his thing, which is ministry. Jesus is teaching. He is healing people. He is changing people's lives. And as he gets done in the city, Jesus and the disciples decide that they need to head towards Jerusalem. As they're about to leave the city, a man runs up to Jesus and kneels down before him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The book of Matthew tells us that the man was young. The book of Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And all three of the Gospels tell us that he was rich. Thus the name rich young ruler. What this means is this, this guy seemingly has it all. He's got the big three. He's got the triple crown. He has money and wealth, what many people in this world want. He has power and influence in, and you got to understand, in Jewish culture, power and influence happened through the religious establishment. He was basically a leader in his church at a time when thou, those kind of positions were reserved for older men. And he was able to accomplish all of this at a young age, maybe in his 20s. This is what most people strive for in life, to be young, rich, and powerful. And most people, probably from the outside, thought that his life was perfect. I mean, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard people say, if I only had money, if I only had this perfect job, this perfect girl, my life would be perfect. It's amazing how quickly after we get what we want, we realize how little we actually have. You have what you always thought you wanted only for that thing to still leave you empty. You see, I, I listen to other ministers and I've, over the years I've heard a lot of speakers and a lot of preachers come down pretty hard on the rich young ruler. Even in commentaries, they're pretty rough on them. I don't see them that way. You see, let me tell you why I think that the rich young ruler was legitimate when he ran up to Jesus. Let me tell you, no rich person, no politician, no judge, no one in authority is running after anyone 
let alone submitting to that person if they think they have things all figured out. That doesn't make sense. It wouldn't happen. This guy reached the apex of his life in his 20s that many people try to achieve for 40 years. And for this guy, it's kind of a blessing and a curse all rolled into one. You see, it's a blessing from the standpoint that he realizes what many people don't because they're spending their whole lives chasing after that dime. Chasing after that power that he still feels empty. You can buy the stuff, you can go places, you can have the temporary happiness, but it's all going to quickly fade away. And this man, he knows it. He knows it. He feels this emptiness in his life. And he doesn't know what to do with it. I got it all. I have everything you could want, and yet I still feel empty. You get a feeling some people that maybe understand that. And then one day, this guy hears about Jesus. He hears about this great teacher who speaks with power and authority from God. And that sparks his interest. He hears about a man who is more than a man, who is healing people left and right. And when you're empty and you don't feel like you have anything, you're looking for something. And I imagine after this guy heard about Jesus, he probably started to go check him out a little bit. Hey, Jesus is coming to a town near you. And so maybe he comes to one of Jesus' uh, teachings. And he's sitting in the back. You know, he's, he's famous, so maybe he's got his hoodie pulled up. You know, no one, I don't want anyone to see me. You know, I'm going to be recognized. I don't want that. But yet he's still interested because he knows there's something different. And as he listens to Jesus' teachings, as he sees him perform miracle after miracle, eventually the guy doesn't begin to care. He cares more about the one he's listening to than what other people think. And he goes back day after day to hear Jesus speak. To listen to Him. He might have even got in his head at some point that, man, I want to go talk to this guy. I want to talk to him. A little afraid. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm still pretty famous. People know I'm religious. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And then all of a sudden he hears that Jesus is leaving. He's going. This is my opportunity. You got to understand, people back then, they basically lived in a 30 mile radius their whole life. Today was his day. And so he throws everything 
you know, to the wind, caution, just, and he runs after Jesus. And he kneels down before Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? He was sincere. He meant well. But you got to understand, even in his question, it reveals a fundamental error in his thinking. Okay, I'm going to date myself here, and I have apologize for this um there's a movie that probably most of you are too young to see but uh called i robot uh okay back when will smith actually acted and stuff yes if you haven't seen it basically in the movie he's a detective in the future and he's trying to solve a murder robots take over the world blah 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 at the heart of it though the guy who was killed left behind little clues. They're little automated answers. In the movie, the key was to ask the right question, you get the right answer. And so he struggled throughout the movie asking the right question. He'd look at this thing, he'd talk to it, and he didn't ask. And then finally, it clicked, and he got the right answer. When I read this story, I kind of feel like it's the biblical version of this movie. Jesus, or excuse me, the rich young ruler asks his question, and yet Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Why does Jesus, you know, many times I've wondered, why does Jesus answer this question with a question? Two reasons. One Jesus really likes to ask questions. And I mean that. It's how he taught. In the New Testament, Jesus asked 307 questions. Jesus doesn't want stupid disciples, remember? He wants people to think. And he would often lead them to water to drink by asking questions. Secondly, the rich young ruler asked the wrong question. You see, there are two major flaws that Jesus addresses in his response to the rich young ruler's wrong question. First is the rich young ruler's understanding of the word good. When Jesus asked, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. This isn't a denial of his divinity. He's not denying that he is the Son of God. It's addressing the man's understanding of good as an achievement. You see, in the world today, when we think of someone who is good, it's because of their actions. It's, they are good because they gave some money to the poor, they helped someone out. It's based off of what they did. God's version of good, it's a state of being. God is good. He doesn't do good. That is just a fruit of who he is. God is good. Can we all agree for a second that Satan likes to twist some truths? That much we can agree? Okay, cool. There are two phrases I've heard Christians say over the years that buy into his lies. 
The first one, I'm good enough the way I am. And the second one, I'll never be good enough for God. Two sides of the wrong coin. You see, while it's true that God loves us all the way we are, it's because he loves us that he doesn't want us to remain the same. I told you last week, I love my daughter. She's my girl, she's my heart. I will always love her throughout her life. I don't want her to stay a four-year-old forever. I want her to grow up. I want her to become a woman after God's own heart. The things that are cute when you're four aren't so cute when you're 21. And while it's true, we'll never be good enough for God, God doesn't ask us to be. We are good because He is good, and He makes us good. Jesus coming to earth and dying was never about being good enough. It also was never about doing enough to be good either. God is good. The rich young ruler thought he could do something to inherit life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a common misunderstanding that many of us struggle with today. We believe that we have to buy our way into heaven and that there's some kind of cosmic scoreboard keeping track of the good and the bad that we do if the scales happen to be leaning the right way when we die or if we please god enough he'll let us into heaven and i think a lot of times there's this misunderstanding is tied to what jesus says next see jesus says to answer your question you know the commandments And he rallies off a few, do not murder, do not uh, commit adultery, do not steal, honor your mother and father. Jesus isn't telling the man that he could work his way into heaven. And you can't work your way into heaven by obeying the Old Testament law. If that were true, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for our sins to begin with. You see, the Old Testament, there are these laws that are laid out that they point out truth. They point out sin in our lives, but that law couldn't save us. We can't live up to it. Romans 8.3 says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. You see, this is Jesus talking, okay? This isn't you or me. He knows who he's talking to. He knows who he's speaking to. He knows that this rich young ruler was lacking something. And he knows that this man has religion. And guess what? 
It's not wrong. Religion is not wrong. It's just incomplete. Jesus is trying to point out to this rich young ruler, you've tried it your way. You've done what you could. You have not murdered. You have not done stolen. You have not had adultery. And yet, you still feel empty. Now how about you try it my way? What I love about Jesus is he's always intentional. He always knows what he's saying. I also believe that he's very intentional about what he doesn't say. Because when I was reading through this section, I was sitting there and I'm like, I'm reading off the commands that Jesus told him. But I'm like, this is interesting. Jesus rallies off you know, these commandments and they're good but something seems to be missing. What's the two greatest commandments that Jesus said? Love God, love your neighbors. And yet, he left that out. There's a reason for that. You see, I wish, I wish so much I could have been there for this next moment. You see, this moment embodies who Jesus was and still is today. See, the Bible tells us that he looked at the man and that Jesus felt genuine love for him. Last week we, talked, we finished off the night talking about our life purpose, to be loved by God. That individual unconditional love that God wants to speak over us. Jesus had that real kind of love for this young man. And God's love to us is manifested through this thing called grace. Grace is basically the way God's love is lived out and put into action. Grace is God's personal care for us. And what you need to understand is that grace is free, but it's not cheap. God's grace is a costly grace. And let me just try to quickly explain this as best as I can. There are two kinds of grace in this world. There is a cheap grace, and there is a costly grace. Cheap grace is a weak grace. It doesn't care. It's based off of a shallow love and a shallow forgiveness that doesn't really give a care if you improve, doesn't really give a care if you're healthy. Cheap grace lets a person remain in the place where they are today. And it allows that person to remain the same. It's the idea of when we say, you know what, Jesus died for me. He died for my, my life so I can go on sinning. Romans 6 tells us no. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. 
Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. See, costly grace, that's the gift of life to us from God. It's the kind of grace that changes us and leads us to more change. You see, the price of God's grace, it came at a real cost. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't on clearance rack. It wasn't on sale. It came at an expensive price. The life, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of the Son of God. And to treat this grace and this gift from God any less valuable than what it is devalues what the Lord has done for us. And so, Jesus goes to this man with great love and a costly grace. And he challenges the rich young ruler to do the one thing he hadn't really tried. Have a relationship with God. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It's funny, whenever people read that verse, the first thing that 99.9% of people think about and focus on is the wealth that Jesus is asking the rich young ruler to give away. You see, at that point, most people build a wall and say, that's crazy, Jesus, I'm not doing that. And I'm just going to assume you're not asking me to do that. Anyone else ever felt maybe a little bit bad for the rich young ruler? I, I have. It's like, hey, Jesus, whoa, whoa. Maybe let's start like 10 or 20%. How about that? And maybe work up from there. The problem is everyone focuses on what he's giving up instead of what Jesus is offering. You see, this isn't about money. Uh, in Luke, literally when, when the story is told, in the next chapter, there's this guy named Zacchaeus. He is a rich man. He's a wealthy man, a tax collector, hated by the people. He wants to see Jesus, and he climbs a tree to see him. And Jesus goes walking along and tells Zacchaeus, get down from there. I want to hang out in your house tonight. And people are mad at him. But this encounter with Jesus changes Zacchaeus' life. And he goes, Jesus, I'm going to change. I'm going to give half of everything I have away to the poor. And for the people I have cheated in my life, I'm going to pay things back four times over. And Jesus said, guess what? Zacchaeus was still rich. He was not poor at that point. And yet Jesus says, salvation has come to this man's house today. You see, it's not about money. What Jesus is addressing is a major issue in this man's life. You see, his possessions possessed him instead of the other way around. The famous rich young ruler found his identity and security in his wealth. 
when it needed to be in Jesus. Jesus goes on later in the chapter and, and says to his disciples, it is hard for the rich to get into heaven. Got a better chance of a camel getting through the needle of, head of a needle than a rich person to get into hell, heaven. You need to understand that the word rich or wealthy uh, isn't limited to money. It includes money, that is for sure. But it isn't limited to money. You see, it's referring anything that takes up a lot of space in our lives, a lot of real estate. It can be relationships. It can be matters of life, schoolwork, an event, a business. And while the rich young ruler's issue was his love for money, wealth is anything in our life that gets in the way of us loving God. If you go back to what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do, I believe that Jesus took the two great commandments and personalized them for the rich young ruler. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus was asking the guy to do when he said, give up your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. Love God, love people. The first set of commands that Jesus rallied off, they were religious commands. And now he was addressing the relational commands. You've tried religion, it's left you empty and unfulfilled, now try a relationship with me. Come, follow me. And last week we learned that real change comes out of spending daily time with the Lord in what we call prayer. Prayer is our communication with God. It's a vital part of our life. And you see, prayer is the difference between religion and relationship. You can be dedicated to a religion, you ain't hanging out with Jesus, you don't have a relationship. Jesus knew that the rich young ruler had a devotion to the law of Moses. He had a devotion to the religious system, but had never sunk down into his heart. He had a strong religious commitment, but had never caused him to truly fall in love with God. It had never become personal or deeply relational with a living God. Your attachment to your possessions needs to be replaced by an attachment to me. Uh, there, seemingly, like every action or movie or TV show I've seen over the years, they have the scene. And you can imagine with me, basically, someone's hanging off a cliff, right? And they're just holding on, they're holding on with one hand, and then the other hand, they got like a big bag of gold or treasure or something that they refuse to let go. And there's someone always hanging over the side of the cliff saying, just let it go. Just drop the stupid thing so that you can live. And yet, in the movies, those people never let go. 
They hold on to that thing until you see their little hands. Ah! And then they disappear into a cloud below and stuff. They're dead, all right? I believe that's what Jesus is spiritually trying to do here. You lack one thing, it's me. He's reaching out, he's trying to take our hand. But that one thing in our life, whatever it is, we won't let go. And it's dragging us down. You want heaven, you want to be justified, follow me. Connect to me, depend on me, let go of your small ambitions and come follow me. And students, I wish the story ended better. I do, because this should have been a moment of celebration. A moment of freedom for this guy's life. Finally, what I have been searching for this whole time, I got! Unfortunately, it's not the storybook ending. The word says that he hung his head and went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus didn't want this for the guy. He doesn't want that for us. When we walk away from him, he's hurting, man. The students that I've seen walk away from God, to be honest with you, they can be mean at times. A little nasty. Still love them. And it hurts because I do love them. And it's not what Jesus wants for us, but we serve a jealous God. He's not sharing us. But as one of my favorite writers once wrote, either Jesus is the Lord of all, or he, is, he isn't the Lord at all. You see, the man walks away, and I can see Jesus staring at him and be like, come on. Turn around. And then he finally turns to his disciples, and that's when he says, you know, hey, it's easier for a rich uh, camel to get through the head of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. And the disciples are freaking out. Okay? They are confused. They are scared. You understand, in Jewish culture, they thought if you were rich, it meant God liked you. And he was blessing you. And that means everything in your life is okay. And so the disciples, they don't get it. They're confused still. They're basing their mindset, their perspective through the ways of the world instead of through God's eyes. And they ask Jesus, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus responds with one of the most powerful truths that people love to say, love to put on coffee cups, but truly don't always understand. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God.
I believe in the impossible. I truly do. Because I know myself. I know my talents, my abilities, my strength. It ain't happening. But I know with my God, all things are possible. That's the truth we've got to stand on. And I'll be honest, we'll probably be addressing this in uh, the other side of this coin next week. But there may be some of you here tonight that you're saying, I'm struggling. You've got to stand on the truth that it's not about doing enough. It's not about being good enough, wealthy enough. It's about knowing God is enough. Bow your heads, close your eyes, let's finish up.